North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Impossible State podcast. We're actually doing a video version of the podcast this time. My name is Victor Cha. I'm Senior Vice President and Career Chair here at CSIS, Vice Dean and Professor at Georgetown. Normally, the podcast, as our listeners know, is hosted by Andrew Schwartz, but Andrew is a little bit under the weather today, so I'm stepping in as both our uh, host and moderator. Today's discussion is on North Korea, North Korea policy in particular, and I have two very special guests with me today, uh, both good friends who've written a very interesting paper for the National Institute for Public Policy on a new way of thinking about North Korea. And so I thought we'd spend some time today talking about the ideas that they presented in this very interesting paper. Uh, the two co-authors are Bob Joseph, Ambassador Bob Joseph, and Greg Scarlatti, um, both, again, uh, well-known to uh, the Korea audience. Uh, but let me introduce them anyway. Bob Joseph is currently senior scholar at the National Institute for Public Policy. He formerly served as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security, as well as Special Envoy for Nuclear Nonproliferation. He is a member of the Board of Directors of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Also joining us is our good friend Greg, Greg Scarlatti. He's Executive Director at the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea otherwise known as HRNK. Those are ubiquitous. Uh, that's a ubiquitous ac acronym in the study, anybody who studies North Korea. Uh, he's also vice president of the International Council of Korean Studies and really sort of a trailblazer in a lot of the work that's been done on understanding the human rights disaster that's taking place in, in North Korea. And Greg, thank you for all your work. Bob, thank you for all your service um, in the U.S. government. Um, so I thought the way we would start this is um, we talk a little bit about elements of this report, um, and then a, a, as well as where we are. Uh, this is uh, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the Commission of Inquiry report on North Korea, um, and, and then also talk a little bit about the regime and what we think is going on there because they've been um, doing some interesting things. Let's say. So first, in terms of the report, Bob, I'd like to start with you. And the report sort of rests on sort of six sort of key assumptions slash arguments that um, I thought we could take our listeners through, if that's okay. And the first of these is this is essentially this notion that um, the, the U.S. policy on North Korea has for decades been focused on denuclearization diplomacy. Um, and one of the main um, messages of this report is that that should really not be our focus, right? So maybe you could say a little bit about why you think that should not be our focus. Well, Victor, it's good to see you again, and thank you for the invitation to be here and present our alternative strategy on, on North Korea. Let me first uh, emphasize that the report that you have 
uh, is a collaborative effort. Uh, and I had the great good fortune of being able to work with uh, really a number of terrific individuals, true experts in the field. In addition to Greg, uh, we had uh, Joe Detrani, who I know you've worked with in the past, uh, Nick Eberstadt, David Maxwell, Bob Cohns, uh, and uh, Olivia uh, Enos. And all of them have deep experience uh, and have uh, impressive credentials in both national security affairs as well as in human rights. Uh, I came at this from the perspective of my career, my background in nonproliferation and arms control. And that's really the approach that I took uh, in uh, working with the others uh, to develop and design and hopefully in the future implement a new strategy with regard to North Korea. Because I think if, if you look back 30 years, three decades, going back to the Clinton administration, I think you find a remarkable consistency in American foreign policy. And that is, although each administration tinkered with the carrots and the sticks, the incentives and the disincentives somewhat, basically every administration had at the core of its North Korea policy the quest to convince Pyongyang to give up their nuclear weapons. And just as consistent has been the failure. And for 30 years, we have failed. And I think the greatest tell on that uh, is the advancement of the North Korean nuclear weapons program. As you know, it started off with relatively small plutonium reprocessing that moved into relatively large scale uh, uranium enrichment. The stockpile moved from one to two weapons to today an estimated 40 to 60. And according to a recent RAND uh, projection, that number could reach over 200 by 2027. That may seem like a long time away, but it's only four years from now. And imagine having this conversation four years from now with a North Korea that possesses hundreds of nuclear weapons, as much if not more than France and the United Kingdom. It would be a much different conversation, but that has convinced me, and I think it convinced the other members of the uh, working group that we, uh, that we established, that we need to have a fundamental shift in our policy, a fundamental change in the way we think about North Korea, because the numbers are only increasing, and it's not just the nuclear weapons numbers and the six nuclear tests, uh, it's also the ballistic missile uh, capabilities and the other missile capabilities that they've developed for uh, for delivery. Uh, just just last week, uh, Kim presided over the latest military parade, and what was showcased were at least eleven Hwasong 17s, a missile that's able to uh, target anywhere in the United States, uh, as well as at least five transporter erector launchers carrying canisters that were presumed to be mock-ups of a solid-engine uh, ICBM, uh, which will make a fundamental difference in terms of the threat that we face, putting much more stress on our ability to intercept through the missile defenses that we have. But that's another story. We can come to that later if we have, if we have time. But the threat convinced all members of the group that we did need to have this departure, that we needed to uh, let go of 30 years of failed policy 
and come up with an alternative. And the alternative that we came up with uh, is laid out in this report. And as you say, there are six strategic propositions. The first one, and I think perhaps the most significant, is that we need to let go of this false hope that Pyongyang is going to abandon their nuclear weapons program. Pyongyang under the current regime. Under the current regime. Uh, as long as the Kim regime exists, as long as it rules in the North, we will have to deal with the North Korean threat, and not just the threat as it is today, but the threat as it expands. Because remember, uh, very recently, uh, Kim has stated that uh, it was imperative that North Korea expand its stockpile as fast as possible. Uh, and also you have a recent law passed in North Korea that says that we will not, we the North Koreans will not bargain over our nuclear program. And also another law that says that North Korea can use nuclear weapons preemptively uh, if the Kim regime is, is threatened. So you look at what they're doing with their nuclear stockpile and their missiles and you look at the past efforts, and there have been many different efforts, as I said, to sit down with them, to negotiate with them. None of them have succeeded. So what we believe is that we need to have this fundamental shift. This fundamental shift has to put forth up front a human rights approach and an information campaign and an influence campaign that will, that will lead to a free uh, uh, Korea and a unified Korea, and so that's that's basically the you know the the first uh, strategic proposition. So we'll go through. Uh, I want to go through each of these. Okay. So this is very helpful for our listeners. So, you know, like I do this sometimes at Georgetown when I teach. Sometimes I give the conclusion up front in case I don't get to it in the end. <laughs> but um, but this is great. So let me go to the second of these. And there's a. There's a line in particular in the report, um, which is quite, it's a very sort of striking line, and it says, the Kim's regime's greatest vulnerability is from within. And so maybe I can get, um, and I'd like to bring Greg in too, maybe I can get you both to expand on how this, what this particular line means and how it, if it's informed your thinking. Thank you, Bob. And let me say, it's a great pleasure to be back at CSIS with you, Victor, our dear friend, and Bob has been a great honor to be part of this uh, team working on our report. Um, so, Victor, uh, the pattern hasn't changed. The paradigm hasn't changed in North Korea. This is a regime that extracts the resources, procures the resources it needs in order to survive by means of oppressing and exploiting its own people at home and abroad. What do they need in order to survive? course, we know nukes, missiles, luxury goods, and hard currency brought in from the outside world in order to keep the key elites happy. And that hasn't really changed. There is a great tension within North Korea. As we all know, the people of North Korea are delivered their ideological training sessions day in and day out. At least once a week, depending on your job, you have to go through a Senghua Tonghua self-criticism ideological training session. As students of North Korean ideology, we know that there is a fundamental tension between Kim Il-sung thought, between Kim Il-sungism, and even the very legislation of North Korea, their own constitution, and also 
international obligations that North Korea has assumed. We need to tell the people of North Korea three stories. Number one, the story of their own human rights. The story of the obligations their own regime has assumed by means of joining all of these international instruments and through their own legislation. They claim to be, well, Marxism-Leninism is no longer in the North Korean constitution. They claim to be a worker's paradise. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need to tell them the story of the corruption of the core elites, especially the corruption of the inner core of the Kim family and the Kim family regime. And, uh, of course, they need to understand the story of the outside world. Yes, we know that through um, information surreptitiously brought into the country, smuggled into the country, more North Koreans watch uh, South Korean K-drama, uh, more North Koreans know about South Korea and the outside world, but we need to keep telling them that story, the story of the outside world, in particular, the story of free, democratic, prosperous Republic of Korea, South Korea, the only Korean model that is truly viable and conducive to democracy, freedom, human rights, and prosperity. Bob, one of the things that the report also talks about is this notion that it talks about policy myths, right? And uh, one, of the, one of the myths that you refer to is this relationship between human rights policy and denuclearization diplomacy. Um, maybe you can expand for the listeners what, what, is, the, what is the myth and, and how you guys think about that. And I would just add one footnote to, uh, to Greg's comments, and that is North Korea is the last of the totalitarian states. And I think its fate has been sealed. And I think that over time, with the type of activities and initiatives that Greg mentioned in terms of information and influence uh, uh, campaigns, uh, that regime will go the way of previous totalitarian regimes. Uh, in terms of the myths, that we talk about, there are four or five of them uh, in, uh, that, that we address in our, in our report. I think the one that is probably the most pernicious, the most persistent, and the most powerful is this notion that if we, the United States, in our negotiations on nuclear issues, raise human rights in the context of those negotiations, we will get nowhere with our negotiation because the North will pull out. Well, for 30 years, we've gotten nowhere on our negotiations, and we haven't raised human rights. We usually raise it beforehand. You saw that in the Trump administration. You saw that in previous administrations. But then it goes, it goes to the back burner. While we really sit down and do the more important business or the more urgent business, as each of these administrations has, has, has described it. Uh, it is my experience, going back to the Reagan administration, that putting human rights up front is, is a way not to discourage negotiations, but it's a way to achieve the national security objective that we have, and that is denuclearization. Uh, and I think, uh, and I think that's, that's sort of an important lesson to draw on. Remember, President Reagan, in our negotiations, in our relationship with the Soviet Union, insisted that human rights be part of the four-part agenda 
that he established, which included arms control and regional events, re regional uh, issues and differences, uh, and economic issues. Uh, and there was resistance. I witnessed that resistance up front uh, on the part of those who were negotiating the START agreement and the INF agreement before that, uh, but the president insisted. And ultimately, uh, the Reagan administration and the Bush one administration before the demise of the Soviet Union succeeded because the Soviet leadership, like the Kim leadership, like the Kim regime, are afraid of their people. They're afraid that their people, if given sort of the information, if given the incentives, uh, that, that will lead to their, to their end. And on that, they're right. I want to come back to um, some of this in a minute, but in this particular way of thinking about things, Greg, if we have a human rights upfront approach with North Korea, who are some of our allies um, in, in terms of this particular I idea? I mean, you can, we can pretty much imagine that progressive governments in South Korea are, are not going to support something. Conservative governments might, but who at Japan probably would, Australia, but who are, who are our allies in something like this? Uh, that's a terrific question, Victor. Post-UNCOI, and this month, we are celebrating 10 years, one decade, since the establishment of the UN Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the DPRK by consensus, with no vote, consensus of, of all 47 members of the UN Human Rights Council. Following the UNCOI report uh, the following year, 2014, we saw consensus building, and we saw a coalition of like-minded states. The United States, South Korea, the Republic of Korea, Japan, all members of the European Union, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and many others. We all remember Botswana. Uh, they decided to, I think, break diplomatic relations, sever diplomatic relations with North Korea following the UN Commission of Inquiry and the finding that they were committing crimes against humanity, in particular at the detention facilities. Um, we did really well for a while. There was an ARIA formula meeting after the report of the UNCOI. Then in December uh, 2014, 2015, 16, and 17, there were um, meetings held at the UN Security Council on North Korean human rights. Of course, this is a procedural matter requiring nine out of 15 votes, no veto applicable. Once it becomes a substantive, uh, the, the veto applies. Um, but nevertheless, we, we lost the high ground we once held. What's truly encouraging these days is that I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen four or five years from now. But based on what we see, the current government of President Yoon Song-yeol in South Korea is dedicated to addressing this issue of North Korean human rights. They appointed a very good ambassador at large for North Korean human rights, Professor Yi Xinhua of Korea University, probably that prompted the Biden administration to appoint another, I, I don't know if I should say this, but she's excellent, I think, an excellent choice, uh, Julie Turner. We hope she's confirmed as soon as possible, so probably that prompted our own administration to, uh, to take action. And I do hope that the Republic of Korea under the administration of President Yoon and the United States, under this administration of President Biden and the next, will once again assume firm leadership of the coalition of like-minded states, pushing 
for significant action on North Korean human rights. And there's really a lot, a lot we can do. May I also mention the UN Special Rapporteur um, on, uh, on the human rights situation in the DPRK, Professor Elizabeth Salmon, who's also an excellent choice. She's already been very active and uh, is doing a lot to address this issue. So I think we are in a, in a good place or in a much better place than we were even you know, a year ago or a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, three really dynamic women, you know, who are who are going to be spearheading a lot of this. But let me just ask you on on the allies part of it. And you mentioned the COI plus 10. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, the operationalization of this strategy. You know, one of the countries obviously not on your list of allies was China. Um, and China exercises a lot of leverage in the UN now, um, in the UNHCR. Um, among the, among the NGO community, I mean, how do you deal with that challenge? Because China would do everything that they could to try to block any sort of movement on North Korean human rights in the UN. No doubt about that, Victor. And we have seen, we have witnessed Chinese opposition at all levels of the UN. Even as we tried to put together events, while well, we executed these events, but. We faced opposition even at the logistical and planning level, and I have full proof of that. Um, I should still write about it because you have all the files and recordings. Um, that said, uh, if China truly aspires to be a uh, legitimate um, superpower, this is about much more than just economic power and military power. Uh, this is about abiding by a set of rules, international law, that has been put in place since World War II. Yes, the UN and the international community have failed miserably at times. And here one can think Rwanda, Yugoslavia, um, Cambodia, and why not North Korea as well. And yet this is the best we have. Uh, China chooses to be, unfortunately, despite being a member of a, a P5 member, a permanent member of the Security Council, China chooses to be a revisionist power that challenges this international order led by the United States, which is imperfect, but which has kept the peace, quite frankly, since, since World War II. Um, so I, I think that, you know, you hear this argument, why push for um, for example, referral of the North Korean case to the International Criminal Court. China will veto it anyway. So be it. Put China in a position where it clearly shows that it aids and abets a regime that commits crimes against humanity. Justice Michael Kirby, the former chief of the UN Commission of Inquiry, appended a letter sent to the Chinese authorities to the UNCOI report it included exactly this warning. By China's policy of forcibly repatriating North Korean refugees to conditions of danger, to a place where they face a clear fear of persecution, uh, China is aiding and abetting a regime that commits crimes against humanity. So I think there is value in that approach, pushing China into that corner. Let me go back to Bob and let me ask you, so some may respond that um, a human rights upfront approach, while one is pursuing this human rights upfront approach, North Korea will be continued to be horizontally and vertically proliferating. So how does your strategy contend with these sorts of concerns? Well, they're doing both the horizontal and vertical proliferation now, and they have been doing that for some time. 
So absent our approach, they, that's, that's the answer. I would just emphasize that this strategy that we're promoting is not the promotion of human rights solely for the sake of human rights. Yes, the crimes against humanity are horrendous. Yes, we need to stand up exactly as Greg described. But this is more than that. This is promoting human rights as a means to resolve very difficult national security issues, including denuclearization. We see this as the path to denuclearization because we see this as the end as a means to end the regime that won't give those weapons up and that will continue to build their stockpile uh, as, well, as well as the capability to deliver. In terms of our approach and how we would respond, uh, one of the strategic propositions deals with the need to contain North Korea in a very active way. Uh, and in addition to containment, there is uh, effective deterrence through both the threat of punishment, retaliation, uh, as well as missile defenses. And we also, as yet another strategic proposition, make very clear that what we need to do is bring together all tools of statecraft. Diplomacy is very important, very important for a whole number of reasons, alliance management, to deal with uh, uh, the human rights and gain more support from, uh, from other sources. Diplomacy is key, but so are economic sanctions uh, and uh, information. As I mentioned, information uh, is a very um, uh, powerful tool. All of these tools need to be brought together in a comprehensive way. They need to be integrated, which we have failed to do. Because over the course, as I see it, over the course of the past 30 years, we have let diplomacy and negotiations on denuclearization substitute for a strategy. So how do we deal with their proliferation? Well, we've created, Victor, you know very well, we've created a number of tools, such as the Proliferation Security Initiative uh, and, and, and other means to do the best that we can. But is this easy? Is this foolproof? Are we going to stop them from doing everything? No, we're not. This is going to take patience. It's going to take strength. And most important, it's going to take leadership. And absent leadership, nothing will work uh, with North Korea. So the strategy, if I have this correctly, the strategy is it, this human rights upfront approach strategy is not, it's not just about human rights. And it's not just um, whacking Korea on human rights when it's convenient. It's part of an integrated strategy uh, that still uses the other level levers of counterproliferation and deterrence, right? Those are still there, but integrates this into how we think about getting to our goal, because our goal still remains CVID, right? Our goal still remains complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. But your verdict is that that will not be achieved through, as you said, three decades of failed diplomacy. And this is a different approach that focuses on the human rights element um, to, to, to really target the key vulnerability of the regime, which is from within. But in the context of a broader, comprehensive strategy that brings together all of the tools that I mentioned. Yeah, I mean, because arguably, um, so we are, we're very familiar with the, with the human rights element of it. Um, arguably, during the, at, the, at the beginning of the Trump administration, before he went into summit diplomacy, it was not integrated into a strategy. It was just like a stick you know, that, that he hit the North Koreans with. But th what you're, I just want to make clear to our listeners, what you're talking about is something that's very different 
from both of these approaches and that it's, as, as you said, Bob, it's got to be driven from the top, right? Yes. Because there is a bias, as we know, in, in the State Department with regard to diplomacy and negotiation when it comes to this particular issue. One, one thing, Victor, that I have learned in the course of my career is never underestimate the power and the persistence of bad ideas in the policy community. And here you have a bad idea that has sort of been at the center of our policy for 30 years, despite failure after failure. All you need to do is look at the growth in their nuclear program. That's all you need to do. And you know, you know that what we've done hasn't succeeded. Now we can continue to try to do that, but I guess at that point you're violating Einstein's definition of, of sanity, uh, continuing to try to do the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. No, we have to do it differently. And human rights is, there, is the key vulnerability of the regime, as we as we've point out. But it's not just human rights. It's human rights in the context of this broader strategy. And it's a realistic strategy. It's one that is grounded in containment, in deterrence, in defense, but in so many other things as well. And we do expect not only resistance from Russia and China, that's guaranteed. Okay. No, no question about that. There will be resistance in our own bureaucracies. Uh, remember the resistance, and you went through this personally, uh, to getting out of the ABM Treaty. Because the world would change, the sky would fall if we were to do that. But when we did it, and we did it through leadership at the top, what happened? The treaty went away. We were then able to defend ourselves against, in this case, North Korean ballistic missiles. Yeah, I want to uh, ask Bob one more thing, and then I'm going to go to I want to go to Greg to talk about uh, where we are now today, ten years after the COI. But for but first for Bob, I mean. One of the other strategic propositions in the report is that you say, uh, that you all say, while not taking the military option off the table, the preemptive use of force to achieve regime change is not a viable option. So can you speak to that? Sure. Some of the criticism that we get about sort of a fundamental shift in strategy, the way that we are proposing, is that, well, what you're really proposing is regime change. Well, yes, as we did with the Soviet Union, regime change from within, not regime change brought to you with military force. And it was the clear view of the strategy group that the costs, the catastrophic costs that would result from a, milita a large scale military conflict on the peninsula simply wasn't worth it. That's not the way to achieve the goals that we want. You don't, take the you don't take the military option off the table, but you recognize that the preemptive use of force to achieve those objectives is not the right approach. Uh, we do say that if we have high confidence that the North is going to attack in a large-scale you know, in a, in a large manner, particularly if they're going to use weapons of mass destruction, and remember, they have large stockpiles of chemical and biological uh, weapons. If, you know, if we know that with high confidence, then you consider it but not as a tool to achieve the specific objectives that we've laid out in the report. It makes no sense to start a, to, to start a nuclear war to prevent a nuclear war. <laughs> so, um, okay, um, Greg, let me go to you and if we could talk a little bit more about, you mentioned that we're now uh, a decade past the Commission of Inquiry report. There's been a lot that's happened since then. There was a lot of confidence early on in the first few years after the report, 
came out. Um, like you said, the issue made it onto the UN Security Council agenda. Um, but I think everybody would agree that things have fallen off a little bit since then. Uh, maybe if you could talk to how we get things back on track and also um, your assessment of the, I know it's a big question, but your assessment of the human rights situation in North Korea today. Victor, indeed, once again, we uh, gave up that high ground, perhaps for two fundamental reasons. One being that the previous government in South Korea, the government of President Moon Jae-in, very keen on appeasing the North. For that reason, there is very little done on North Korean human rights, and that's an understatement. Some terrible things happened as well, such as the the forcible repatriation of the two North Korean fishermen. Um, And also, as you mentioned, our own uh, rounds of uh, summer diplomacy. Again, human rights was sacrificed on the altar of uh, talking to the North. In this case, direct talks between the the, the two leaders. Uh, How do we get back there? I think we are on our way back there right now. Um, Again, the government of President um, Yoon, Yoon Song-yeol in South Korea, um, is dedicated to this issue. We, we see a lot of good signs there. And again, since the very early days of the Biden administration, um, human rights uh, was described as part of the, the values we share with friends and allies. So was multilateralism, possibly two pillars of our diplomacy. Now, with the appointment of a special envoy, I'm I'm confident that we will see the application of that to our North Korea policy and our North Korean human rights policy. Uh, Where do we stand on human rights in North Korea? Based on our satellite imagery analysis, interviews with defectors, um, interviews with people inside the country, we contact through our defector network, we've identified multiple trends. Uh, post-UNCOI. One of them is the transformation of the detention system. Political prison camps in the border areas were moved away from the border areas. This was bad PR. You had Chinese tourists, Chinese businesses in the area. Facilities, detention facilities inland have expanded. We have also witnessed a disproportionate repression of women. As you know very well, after the Konanahengun, the great famine of the 1990s, women have assumed primary responsibility for the survival of their families. They're the ones who are the primary market agents at the Changmadang, at the Amshijang, the black markets, the open markets, the Mongminshijang, the farmers' markets. They're the ones who get arrested and imprisoned for alleged wrongdoing. They're the ones who cross the border into China, perhaps in in search of freedom, perhaps in in search of opportunity. They're the ones who get arrested by the Chinese authorities and forcibly repatriated to North Korea. Of course, we have also witnessed a great purge of senior officials, family members, associates, and others um, perceived as being disloyal to Kim Jong-un since he had much less time than his father, three years opposed, as opposed to 20. He was much younger, 27, as opposed to 53, and he became leader. These purges have been very intense. Um, under COVID, we're still in the process of assessing exactly what happened under COVID. But one thing is for sure. Perhaps initially, the North Korean authorities addressed COVID as a public health crisis. But then, as it always happens in North Korea, they politicized and weaponized COVID 
to crack down on attempted border crossings, to crack down on information coming in from the outside world, to crack down on those attempting to access such information, and to crack down on those attempting to import, smuggle in, and distribute such information. So the state of human rights in North Korea, unfortunately, continues to remain dire. This is quite unbelievable. Uh, one could even say that the current human rights situation um, under COVID, post-COVID, is even worse than it was during the later stages of the Kim Jong-il regime. So um, we have a couple of minutes left, and so let me each ask you a question to close us out. For Greg, I'd like to ask you, um, so there's been a lot of press and attention to the fact that the North Korean leader is now featuring his daughter, and I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think that means. And then for for Bob, in terms of the strategy, this, this uh, rights up front uh, strategy, um, again, you have decades of experience in government. Like you said, in government, there are lots of bad ideas that are hard to be down. But what what is like? What do you think is sort of the the most difficult obstacle in terms of um, pushing forward with a strategy like this? So let me first ask Greg if you could offer some thoughts on what's going on with the family. Perhaps just three points about Kim Jue, the daughter, Victor. Number one, the message Kim Jong-un is trying to send is that the dynasty is strong. And the Kim dynasty is there to stay. Of course, it doesn't belong in the 21st century, but this is the message that the regime is sending. Secondly, probably, I've never met Kim Jong-un, but probably the most traumatizing time in his life was when at age 24, he had to begin preparing to become leader of North Korea. And at age 27, becoming leader of North Korea was very likely traumatizing. So perhaps another thing he's working on is to prepare a successor early on. We don't know if Kim Jue is going to be the successor. Kim Jong-nam was the chosen one for a while, and then he, uh, he fell into disgrace, as you all know. We know um, why this happened. So again, it's... Um, all about Kim Jong-un and his um, dynastic politics. There are probably personal reasons here. Um, and uh, perhaps this is a way of indicating that um, after he took power in December 2011, this regime is well established. It relies on its nukes and weapons. It's not about reform. It's not about change. It's not about transformation. It's all about perpetuating the political power of the Kim family regime. Thanks, Greg. Bob? Victor, I think one of the hardest things to do is to convince someone, in this case the policy community, to change how they think about an issue, a complex national security issue. In this case, it is evident to me, and this may seem counterfactual or counterintuitive, but it's going to be very difficult for the bureaucracies and for individuals who have been dealing with this issue for 30 years to get them to change, to get them to let go of 30 years of failure. As odd as that sounds, it's going to be very difficult. It's a huge challenge. My view is we need to, we need to advertise what we're doing in terms of our strategy. We need to get people to understand that there is an alternative. 
because I don't see any other alternatives out there other than continuing down the path that we have. And again, I don't want to have this conversation five years from now when the threat is even greater, much greater than it is, particularly, you know, given North Korea's propensity to sell everything they have to the highest bidder. So providing nuclear technology, providing even nuclear weapons to other rogue states or even terrorist entities uh, is, not, is, is, is clearly not beyond them, okay? Uh, so what, what, I think, what I think we need to do uh, is provide sort of our ideas, have them, you know, have them proliferated, if I may use that term, within the national security community, but also to focus in on who the next president is going to be, okay? I don't think the Biden administration is going to change. I mean, they're simply not going to do that, okay? There'll be a hundred reasons. It'll be, well, the negotiations, if we ever do get them going, you know, won't, won't be successful if we emphasize human rights. Or here, you know, here, here they go again. All they want is a war on the peninsula. You, you know what the responses are going to be. You know what the resistance is going to be. What we need to do, I think, is to discuss our ideas with the next president to come into office, who then, if we're lucky, takes this on as a priority, appoints the right people, whether it's at state or in the NSC. My personal view is at the NSC. And from the top, you drive this idea down. Because I think the greatest resistance is likely to be in our own bureaucracies. Uh, we'll also have difficulties with, uh, with our allies, but I think that's very manageable. That's where the role of diplomacy is so, is so critically important. And we'll also have to manage the inevitable criticisms of, of Russia and China. This is, this is a tough problem, okay? And there's no, there's no easy approach to this. Uh, but it's going to take, as I said, determination and leadership, patience and strength if we're going to prevail. Well, thanks. This was a, a very inter interesting discussion uh, for myself as well as for our listeners. Again, the title of the report is called The National Strategy for Countering North Korea by the National Institute for Public Policy. Uh, and we've had Bob Joseph and Greg Scarlatti join us, two, two co-authors of the project. Thanks, uh, both of you, for all of your time. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, for another episode of The Impossible State. We'll be back in about three weeks, and hopefully Andrew Schwartz, our host, can join us, and I can, I can be a, a member rather than a, a host and moderator. So thanks very much, everybody. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.